The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Volume 4, The Medieval World, Episode 66, The Song Dynasty. The Tang dynasty of China emerged from the remnants of the Sui dynasty in the early 7th century and quickly rose to become one of the more affluent nations in the world, with its access to the Silk Road being a great advantage. Strong leaders oversaw cultural innovations, technological advancements and territorial expansion. However, this also led to a large number of ethnic groups and families being integrated into the Tang sphere of influence. Tang, China was overstretched and local warlords grew in power and rebelliousness as they saw an opportunity to oppose the central imperial authority and gain followings. This caused Tang, China to fragment in the 10th century. One of the warlords called Zhu Wen decided to assist the imperial court by betraying the rebellion of one Huang Chao and by doing so Zhu Wen gained the favour of the Chinese emperor. Zhu Wen used this favour to raise his own stock and he would use this power for his own self-promotion. Zhu Wen then betrayed the imperial court and systematically organised for members of the imperial royal family to be murdered so that he could ultimately seize the role of emperor for himself. He would rule as emperor Taizu and the Tang dynasty was displaced. The new dynasty would be the Liang dynasty called Hou Liang or later Liang to distinguish it from the Liang dynasty that ruled over southern China during the 6th century. The irony was that the fall of the Tang dynasty saw China fragment and the area which Emperor Taizu's later Liang dynasty ruled over was restricted to a much smaller area in northern China centred on the Yellow River Valley. The rest of China and particularly the south fragmented into small states so we return to the post Han and pre-Sui, days of a disunified China. The oncoming period was not a good period for China, as no centralisation meant that the infrastructure of unified China was somewhat abandoned. For example, flood defences were not maintained, leading to agricultural difficulties. 
However, with such a vast territory being governed by so many different states, prosperity did start to emerge in the South during the 10th century. The South broke up into multiple states as we mentioned, but in the North, the later Liang dynasty was fairly short-lived. The later Liang dynasty was formed after Emperor Taizu overcame his rivals for power, particularly one named Li Giyong, who was of Chateau Turkic ethnicity. It would be the son of Li Keyong, namely Li Tsanchu, who would destroy the later Liang dynasty after just 16 years and form the later Tang dynasty in its place. Once again though, the later Tang dynasty was short-lived, lasting only 14 years. In fact, there was a succession of five short-lived dynasties in a row in northern China. They were the later Liang, the later Tang, the later Jin, the later Han and the later Zhou. Couple this with the multiple and concurrent minor states that formed in the south and this is the period which historians refer to as the Five Dynasties and Ten Kingdoms period of Chinese history. Although there were definitely more than ten kingdoms in actual fact. Emperor Taizu The third of the five dynasties, the later Jin, faced growing pressure from its north where a nomadic steppeland peoples called the Kitan had established their own nation-state. This Kitan Empire is also referred to as the Great Liao Dynasty of Northern China. Their intervention in the affairs of the later Jin led to its downfall and led to the establishment of another Shatuo Turkic dynasty. So the northern ethnicities would maintain a heavy influence on northern Chinese politics. The last of the five dynasties was the later Zhou and one of the military generals of the later Zhou was a man called Zhao Quanying. The later Zhou dynasty was under the rule of a child emperor who came to be known as Emperor Gong. Zhao Quanying usurped the imperial throne and established the Song dynasty ruling as Emperor Taizu from the year 960, not to be confused with the Emperor Taizu who caused the fall of the Tang. As the ruler of the Song dynasty, Emperor Taizu gradually set about reunifying China using a combination of diplomatic and military means. The willingness to use diplomatic means is what some historians cite as a difference between the Song and the predecessor the Tang. The Song are seen to be a lot more modern and measured in their attitudes, but are also criticised for their willingness to recognise the Khan of the Kitans as somewhat equal in status to the Song emperor. Many previous dynasties would look to promote their emperor as superior to neighbouring monarchs of different ethnicities. It would be fair to say that the Kitans had used the chaos of the 9th century to be able to develop a strong nation-state in the north, so the Song, developing a respectful relationship with the Liao dynasty of the Kitans, could be considered as shrewd rather than weak. However, this is not to say that Emperor Taizu had a good relationship with the Kitans, as they were known to be in conflict over the political status of the northern borderlands of the Song. From the time of Emperor Taizu, 
the advancements and innovations of China under the Song dynasty were numerous and considerable, and we will try to cover as much as possible during this brief episode. Fundamentally, Emperor Taizu brought back a lot of the stability that the Tang dynasty had brought to China, and this was because of his desire to honour the Confucian model of state governance that the Tang had honoured before him. The traditional system of imperial examinations was promoted, and any form of nepotism or appointment to a political position on the basis of personal commendation was strongly discouraged. Emperor Taizu is thought of as an innovator of a Chinese nation-state that had a modern infrastructure, that was a model for economic prosperity, and as a consequence, a nation-state that would see advancement in culture, art and technology. The capital city of Song, China, was at Bianjing, which is the modern city of Kaifeng. Bianjing was further downstream of the Yellow River than the city of Luoyang. Cultural Advancements In a Confucianist society, the policy of imperial examinations was conducive to the avoidance of nepotism or favouritism when selecting individuals for important roles within the state bureaucracy. We have mentioned the imperial examinations on a number of occasions when discussing Chinese history. The concept itself appears to date back as far as the Han dynasty at the turn of the millennium. After the Han dynasty, China entered a comparative dark age as China fragmented, but when China reunified under the Sui and Tang dynasties, the popularity of the imperial examinations emerged again, especially under the great empress Wu Zetian, of whom we discussed during the Tang dynasty episode. Under the Song dynasty, the system of imperial examinations was expanded upon once again. More and more individuals were permitted to take imperial examinations during this period, and so much so that limits to the amount of people permitted to pass the examination were put in place. The examination certainly was not easy, with candidates sometimes requiring years of study to progress. Those individuals who did well with their imperial examinations would be able to sit the Jinshi examination, which would allow them to achieve the highest degree of the Chinese imperial examination system. The Jinshi examination had also existed since the Han dynasty. Although it's fair to say that although the Chinese system of examinations encouraged anyone to be able to ascend the ladder into the central bureaucracy of the nation, it was difficult for members of poorer families to be able to take the examinations. The ability to devote one's time to the extensive studying required, to be able to obtain the necessary materials to study with, and the expense of travelling to the capital city of Bianjing in order to sit the examinations was far too much for many. The examinations themselves would be a test of the individual's knowledge of their nation, they would need to know about their nation's culture and history, as well as some of the fundamental literature and poetry of China. They would need to demonstrate an understanding of Confucianism, and this would relate to the nature of law within China, which would also need to be understood. Imagine having to access the materials to learn all about this 
a thousand years ago. However, even though there was no internet 1,000 years ago, and even a few centuries before the invention of the printing press, there were still advances in the production of texts in China that would help to widen the distribution of these texts. Rather than copying documents one by one, the Chinese had already mastered the art of engraving their texts in reverse and then using ink and paper, creating a document by gently rubbing the paper on top of the inked engraving. It was during the 1040s that an individual by the name of Bi Sheng invented the first movable type system, created by carefully crafting the individual Chinese characters in clay, which would then be fired to create a small block, which could be placed alongside other blocks to create a sentence, and in turn, a group of sentences which would become an entire document. The same process of using ink and paper and gentle rubbing would produce the paper document. And not only could the document be recreated by using more ink and paper, but the clay characters could be rearranged to produce a different document, which would save many hours of painstakingly engraving an entire document in reverse. The ability of the Chinese to create high quality porcelain was a great advantage when creating such intricate objects. The advanced printing technology allowed the Song dynasty to create the first paper money known to the world. Regular coinage in China was often made of copper, but merchants would find it difficult and dangerous to carry copper coins in large quantities. Now, there was an option to deposit the copper coins with deposit shops in exchange for paper promissory notes. There were drawbacks with the paper currency, such as it encouraging forgeries or deposit shops failing to exchange the copper back in some cases, especially if the deposit shop or the treasury over-issued the paper notes, all of which would lead to inflation. With all of that being said, the innovation of paper money had more advantages than disadvantages and it would not be long before the innovation was taken up by more Chinese circuits, which were the largest political subdivisions, and eventually the neighbouring states. Of course, we know paper money now is global. With paper currency, trade was made less difficult and the Song dynasty invested in the improvement of the Chinese waterway system. China had always tried to improve its navigable waterways from all the way back before the Qin dynasty during the first millennium BCE. The lands of southern China around the Yangtze River were comparatively fertile and the capital cities of unified Chinese lands were often further north around the Yellow River. The waterways of China generally flowed from west to east which was not helpful for the purpose of moving surplus agricultural yield from south to north. So the Chinese invested themselves into the development of an extensive canal system. The Bien Canal was a highly significant section of the Grand Canal system and the Song dynasty made great improvements to this. The volume of traffic using this section is suggested to have tripled since the age of the Tang dynasty. Another advantage of the canal system was for irrigation which was vital for the management of agriculture and particularly the paddy fields in which rice is grown. 
under the Song dynasty, rice became the most important staple crop. A versatile variety of rice was brought to China from the lands of Champa on the eastern coast of the Indochina Peninsula. Couple this with major improvements in the agricultural technology and the vehicles used to transport the yield along the waterways and the vast standing armies of the imperial court could now be fed. The rice would have been transported by junks, which is the name of the sailing ships favoured by the Chinese, which had been in use since ancient times. Traditionally, the sails were made from woven grass, but it may have been during the Song dynasty that the more durable canvas sails replaced them. The Song junk would have had four masts, which is seen as an essential innovation, given the larger size of junk required to transport the large amounts of agricultural yield. With the Song dynasty permitting private traders the freedom to trade, the role of the junk became highly influential in the Sinosphere. To clarify, the Sinosphere is the area of the world under Chinese cultural influence. The development of the junk during the Song dynasty was considerable. These junks were also developed for military purposes as well. Some would patrol the coasts while others patrolled the rivers. The naval military would aid the nation's military in general, which was always guarding against threats from the north. The Liao dynasty of the Kitans was a dominating threat in the north throughout the 11th century. After the collapse of the Tibetan Empire, a traditional enemy of Tang, China, in the 9th century, a peoples called the Tanguts had found a foothold in the lands on the northwest border of China. The Tanguts are described as a hybrid of the Tibetans and the Chinese, but it's fair to say that they were seen as culturally and ethnically distinct. During the 11th century, the Tanguts established a nation-state called Western Xia to the northwest of Song, China, that would become a military nuisance. We have often discussed how Chinese emperors used their expert alchemists to try to create elixirs for eternal life, which in some cases would rather ironically kill the emperor due to the poisonous elements inadvertently added. It seems that Chinese alchemists were constantly tinkering around with various materials until they chanced across a somewhat particular combination of nitrate, sulphur and charcoal and created something that they called fire medicine, perhaps during the 9th century. Over time, this fire medicine was developed to become gunpowder. Now, gunpowder's entry onto the stage of military history was not explosive. It would take many generations for this innovation to be mastered to the point of it being a reliable military weapon. For a long time, it was just an addition to the main traditional military weapons and it does seem that this was its role during the military exchanges of the Song dynasty. However, its use was significant, even if susceptible to unreliability. The Song would use gunpowder to create landmines, grenades and other incendiary projectiles alongside their traditional weapons. New Policies 
During the 10th century, a Chinese statesman called Wang and Shi made some observations regarding the state of the country. He noted how the lowest class of peasants had become indebted to their landowners and in some cases were unable to even feed themselves and their families. He noted how the Chinese government were not nearly active enough to prevent this hardship and that subsequently this problem would manifest itself by resulting in deaths by starvation and peasants leaving their lands in search of a better life, probably something of an impossibility in these circumstances. Some of the irrigation channels that had been the pride of China were now falling into disrepair, as we know already that such channels require regular maintenance to remain useful, but the manpower just wasn't there to be able to do so, and landowners and governments were just not intervening. The peasant class was suffering at an alarming level and national reforms were becoming absolutely necessary. Wang and Shi himself was born of a wealthy family from southern China whose members had achieved the highest status by successfully passing the Jinshi examination. And Wang and Shi himself also passed the Jinshi examination. Wang and Xi's outspoken attitude allowed him to become a trusted voice in the political system and when Emperor Shenzong came to the throne in 1067, in time he would elevate Wang and Xi to a position of high council. This meant that Wang and Xi could now implement reforms to improve Song, China. Wang and Shi's recognition of the poverty of the peasant class concerned him hugely, as he firmly believed that the collapse of the peasant class would have a knock-on effect on the national economy in general. He would bring in a policy of agricultural loans to support the peasant class and protect them from the greedy and extortionate landowners. This was just one part of a great number of reforms made effective by Wang and Shi and something which is collectively referred to as the new policies. Essentially, Wang and Xi believed that by nationalising things such as agriculture and commerce, everybody in China would stand a better chance of living in a fairer society. In fact, it does appear that Wang and Xi was attempting to create a very raw form of welfare state to support the lower classes for the benefit of China in general. Of course, he would face opposition from the more conservative politicians who feared the lack of freedom would slow down the national economy in general. Wang and Xi's intentions seemed to be noble and good and aimed at preventing upper-class tax evaders getting away with murder while the tax-paying peasant class starved. His reforms are considered as made with good intent when viewed historically, but he was opposed on a significant scale even though he was supported by the emperor himself. A famine in northern China in 1074 saw peasants driven away from their lands and the conservatives hastily pointed the finger of blame in Wang and Shi's direction for having not made any provision to protect the farmers from going into debt while trying to pay off their loans. Wang and Shi was driven out of government and retired to Nanjing, where he would live out his years writing poetry and studying. The Fall of Bianjing 
Before we detail the fall of Bianjing, I would like to mention a great creation that existed in the city from the late 11th century. Its creator was a man called Su Song, who was a Chinese polymath, and his creation was an astonishing water clock. Water clocks had existed around the world for very many centuries as a reliable alternative to other methods such as sundials. Without sunshine, a sundial was ineffective, but water would continue to flow at a regular rate in any weather condition, so many societies around the world used water to count time. Su Song's water clock was like nothing ever created before. It was a multi-level tower housing a water wheel. The water wheel would aid in time counting, but due to the scale of the device it could also demonstrate the phases of the moon and the positions of the stars. The water tower would take eight years to build, being completed in 1094, and it would be kept in the capital city of Bianjing, which was unfortunate considering what would happen to Bianjing three decades later. The Kitan Liao dynasty in the far north of China were being supplied with horses on a large scale from a people to their east called the Jurchens, who occupied lands in Manchuria, who had inherited some of the political systems of the collapsed state of Pelhei. Pelhei had collapsed thanks to the aggressions of the Liao dynasty and as a consequence the Jurchens were somewhat subject to them. The Jurchens would have an active trade relationship with both the Liao dynasty and the Song dynasty and this was because the Jurchens had value to their neighbours as a trade partner, especially as expert horse breeders. This meant that the Jurchens were now growing in prosperity and power and this would be a concern for the Liao dynasty and the state of Korea on the Korean peninsula. After resisting an attack from Korea and defeating them in battle in 1109, the Jurchens organised themselves into a nation-state called the Jin Dynasty. With support from the Song, the Jin would score a defeat on the Liao in 1125, which effectively reduced the Liao to becoming a simple rump state called Kala Tidan. The Jin dynasty was now the power of the far north of China and despite their alliance with the Song dynasty, the Jin now saw an opportunity to push on into Song territory. It would not be long before the Song capital city of Bianjing was under siege. The Jin simply turned out to be too powerful for the Song. The capital city fell to the Jin and the Jin simply pushed the Song further and further south to the Yangtze River Valley. Su Song's wonderful water clock was taken by the Jin, but apparently they could not work out how to operate it, so sadly it was abandoned. The Song had to agree terms with the Jin to prevent them from continuing their southward push, and eventually, in the year 1142, a peace treaty was agreed between the two states. The Jin dynasty now had full control over northern China and a new capital was established at Beijing, which the Jin actually called Zhongdu, one of the many historical names for the city. 
the Song dynasty re-established itself in southern China with its new capital city at Linnan, which has become the modern city of Hangzhou near the mouth of the Chengteng River. The Southern Song Dynasty The Song Dynasty continued to rule in the south of China and we refer to the oncoming period as the period of the Southern Song Dynasty to differentiate it from the preceding Northern Song Dynasty period. The new dynasty was established at Linnan by Zhao Gou who ruled the Southern Song as Emperor Gaozong from the year 1127 the same year as the fall of Bianjing to the Jurchen Jin dynasty. The fall of Bianjing is often referred to as the Jing Kang incident, where the older brother of Emperor Gao Zong, who was the Emperor Jin Zong, was captured by the Jurchens alongside many of his family. The future Gao Zong was able to evade capture, which is how he was able to re-establish the Song in the south. Despite the peace treaty between the Song and the Jin in 1142, tensions often resurfaced between the two polities. Wang Yang Liang became the Jin Emperor in 1150 and during his reign he claimed that the Song had violated the peace treaty, but this may have just been a pretext to Wang Yang Liang's ambition to unify the whole of China under Jin rule. However, it appears that Wang Yang Liang made two fundamental mistakes when attacking the Song. Firstly, he underestimated the abilities of the Song army in their own terrain, which was different to that of the North, where cavalry stood a better advantage on the open plains. Secondly, he underestimated the amount of Jin military that didn't care much for the Jin, probably because of their Han ethnicity, as some would defect during the conflict. At the resulting Battle of Zhe in 1161, the outnumbered Song army scored a famous victory over their Jin aggressors, sending them back to the north again. The Song had always produced porcelain, a high-quality ceramic throughout both the northern and southern dynasties. It was after the establishment of the southern Song that the quality improved, especially in the glazing techniques, and southern Song porcelain became sought after far and wide, especially to countries closely associated to the maritime Silk Road. The tradition of producing high-quality porcelain in southern China has certainly outlasted the southern Song and still remains in the modern age. The Rise of the Mongols At the start of the 13th century, the rise of a new people suddenly happened in the steppelands to the north. A man called Temujin had successfully unified the Mongol tribes under one rule and he assumed the name Chinggis Khan, which has been traditionally pronounced in the English-speaking world as Genghis Khan. He attacked the Tangut state of western Chia, turning them into a vassal state by the year 1210. With Western Xia as his allies, Chinggis Khan declared war on the Jin dynasty of northern China by crossing the Great Wall. The Mongols were experts at open warfare in the countryside, 
but struggled when it came to besieging highly developed cities, so it slowed their progress against the Jin. The southern Song were only too happy to see their traditional rivals, the Jin, come under pressure from the Mongols. Support from the Mongols also came from the Kitans, who were a fellow northern peoples who had once lost their Liao dynasty to the Jurchen Jin during the previous century. The tables were now turning on the Jin. Despite their mastery of horsemanship, the Mongols' mastery and numbers proved to be better, and the Jin were kept constantly under pressure. It does appear that the Jin dynasty was cracking under this pressure. The Mongols were a highly organised and efficient military unit, while the Jin were not working as one cohesive unit. It would take 23 years, but eventually the Jin dynasty fell to the Mongols. The climax came when Ogude Khan, son of the deceased Mongol emperor Chinggis Khan, organised a siege of the city of Kaifeng, which was the capital city of Jin China at the time. With the city starved, the Jin Emperor Aizong fled the capital for the city of Zhou. Emperor Aizong appealed to the southern Tsong for help, warning that they would be next on the Mongols' hit list. The southern Tsong refused to help and even went so far as to support the Mongols. Emperor Aizong knew that there was no escape. When the Mongols besieged Zhou, Emperor Aizong committed suicide and the Jin dynasty fell in 1234. The southern Song saw this as an opportunity to try to restore unified China by heading north and attempting to capture Kaifeng from the Mongols. Much as the southern Song besieged Kaifeng, the Mongols held out and the southern Song stretched for resources, were forced to withdraw. The Mongols didn't really see the conquest of southern Song as a high priority though, as they were expanding on a number of fronts. The Mongols initially were much more ready to negotiate with the Song in order to retain their resources for other things. In fact, they would hire mercenary troops to maintain affairs in China. However, during the 1250s, a new wave of Mongol attacks took place which left the Song in a weakened state and as with the Jin, internal tensions grew within Song, China as the Mongols turned up the heat. Things would become even worse for the Song when Kublai Khan became the Mongol ruler in 1264. Initially, Kublai Khan would send envoys to the southern Song to attempt to negotiate a coexistence. Some histories portray this as if it's a noble attempt by Kublai Khan at a peaceful resolution, but it is more likely that the Mongols were more interested in stripping the southern Song of its wealth, resources and dignity. Whatever the case, the southern Song started arresting these Mongol envoys and inevitably this would incur the wrath of Kublai Khan. The inevitable invasion began in 1267 and by 1273 the Mongols had taken control of the city of Xiangyang, meaning that they had gained access to the Yangtze River. It was in 1276 that the Mongols, led by the military general Boyan of the Barin, 
reached the capital city of Linnan. Many of the southern Song felt that the game was up, including members of the imperial court. The emperor at the time was a five-year-old child called Emperor Gong, and he was surrendered to the Mongols as the Song submitted to them. In fact, the young child's life was spared, and he was in fact given a ducal title by the Mongols. Song loyalists disappeared into the country, and the Mongols pursued them to prevent a counter-attack on the capital city of Linnan. However, it just feels like they were delaying the inevitable as the Mongols continued to hunt the Song loyalists down by taking their strongholds one by one. The final show was at Yanmen in the far south where the Song navy was chained together to prevent the Mongol navy fleet having passage upriver. This was fine for the Mongols, all they needed to do was wait it out. While the Song navy was blockading the river, the Mongols could just effectively besiege them there and prevent any supplies from reaching them. When the Mongol navy eventually decided to attack, they were attacking a Song navy line weakened by their own isolation. The final battle took place in March 1279. The Mongol navy was outnumbered by 10 ships to one according to some histories, but the fact that the Song naval fleet was chained together and weakened made them sitting ducks for the Mongols, who also used fire ships. The Song fleet was destroyed and many troops were killed or destroyed, and much of the remainder of the royal family and court in exile chose to drown themselves in the river rather than face capture by the Mongols. The Song dynasty had fallen. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast on the Song dynasty of China. And once again, as ever, I always feel I I should apologise for any uh, bad pronunciations made um, of any of the Chinese words. I apologise, I've got no fundamental uh, learning of the Chinese language and um, I've just had to try and pick it up on the fly, unfortunately, but hopefully it hasn't um, It hasn't impeded too much on your listening pleasure if you are indeed familiar with Chinese uh, language. Um, if you enjoy the podcast and you'd like to support the podcast, then please visit our website and click on the Patreon link and sign up to make a monthly contribution. The website is a historyoftheworldpodcast.com, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. When you sign up, you'll become a lifelong member of the History of the World Podcast Illuminati and you'll qualify for all the gifts and rewards outlined on the website. Um, And um, if you want to listen to the podcast ad-free, then you can subscribe to the podcast on Spotify. There's also some bonus material there from uh, past episodes. If you'd like to get in touch with the podcast, we'd love to hear from you. Please drop me a line at this email address. It's historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. Listener messages and reviews. I received an email this week from Paul Sees, who's put, hi, Chris. Thanks so much for the podcast. I discovered it a few months ago and have been hammering my way through in order. The Western Roman Empire has just fallen. Greetings from Gothic Europe. 
Alongside your podcast, I'm listening to A History of English and doing my best to keep the timelines in sync. It's super interesting and feels like I'm getting more than the sum of the parts. There's another amazing educational history podcast I really like called A Scientific Odyssey, which tells stories from the history and philosophy of science, addressing one broad topic in chronological order per series. Anyway, maybe other listeners would like the other podcasts I mentioned as they have a similar flavour to yours, and perhaps you'd give me a shout out from the future. I will eventually hear it from the other side of the Great Migration period, the rise of Christianity and the advent of the internet. Thanks again for all your work, Paul. Well, thank you very much, Paul. Um, Certainly, I'm very familiar with the history of English uh, by Kevin Stroud, a wonderful podcast, very interesting um, to learn about the language that we speak and the history behind it, of course. And um, I'm not familiar with the scientific odyssey. I'll have to check that one out. But thank you very much, Paul, for your message. Anyway, don't forget that now we give a debrief episode. Uh, it's a it's a second episode, two episodes um, you get on podcast, on main podcast episode week. So don't forget to listen to the debrief episode. It will tell you a little bit about the resources that we use to write this episode and a bit from the background of the History of the World podcast. So be sure to go there and listen to that one now. But if you choose not to, uh, join me again next week for a History of the World podcast magazine episode. And then after that, we'll be diving into the Mongols. It's finally the time for the Mongols and uh, it's going to be a real in-depth, a bit of a roller coaster ride, I think, in terms of uh, how how rapidly things changed during the 13th century. We're going to find out all about that. So until then, until we meet again, be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.